I want to read to you from the 1945 novel, The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith, written by Scottish writer Bruce Marshall. The story's protagonist, the dutiful Father Smith, while walking home one day, encounters a beautiful, seductive young woman standing on her front stoop. Miss Dana Agdala is provocatively assented by her frock blowing all around her lovely legs. She introduces herself to Father Smith, Smith as the author of the scintillating and best-selling Naked and Unashamed. But perhaps you haven't read me, she said. She asks the priest, tell me, do you get much response to the old, old story these days? She, a modernist, had long rejected all that poppycock about baptism and purity and the virgin birth because, of course, it's against all modern science and obstetrics. She explains to him that she'd been dying for years to meet a Catholic priest, but somehow there never seems to be any at any of the parties I go to, she said. She had oodles and oodles to ask you about, about that I don't know I'll ever have time, she said. He invited her to walk along to his next appointment and ask away. Among many questions, built upon her judgment of the silliness of his faith, she asked about his own sexuality and how he manages to, as she puts it, live without us. Easily and confidently, Father Smith answers that, in his view, women's bodies are rarely perfect. They soon grow old and sag. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> And always the contemplation of them, even at their best, is a poor and boring substitute for walking with God in his house as a friend. Miss Agdala judges that Father Smith's answer proves what she had always maintained about Christians, that religion is only a substitute for sex. Father Smith counters roundly, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for faith and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. As the story in Hosea reveals yet again, humanity desperately seeks God, even in all the most ungodly places. So let's review. We started a series on Hosea last week. We saw in chapter 1 that God calls Hosea to marry an adulterous woman to tragically symbolize in billboard form God's relation to his faithless people. His wife Gomer had three children whose names all symbolize God's judgment, which is what is birthed out of unfaithfulness. Yet we discover at the end of chapter 1 a promise given by God that one day judgment would be reversed. Gomer, like so many, seeks pleasure, fulfillment, and purpose in the arms of another. The first three chapters of Hosea reveal that looking to fill the void with anything other than Jesus is just a cheap substitute. That even as Gomer leaves her husband for other lovers, believing that they will offer her something that he can't, we recognize that she is unconsciously looking for God, desiring him all the while. So we're going to look at all of chapter 2. And all of chapter 3 this morning, chapter 3 is short, it's just five verses. But of chapter 2, John Piper calls the latter part of chapter 2 one of the most tender and most beautiful love songs in the Bible. It is sung by God to his unfaithful wife Israel. That's the latter part of chapter 2. James Montgomery Boyce, the late 20th century preacher, said of the third chapter, the third chapter of Hosea is, in my judgment, the greatest chapter 
in the Bible. I love James Montgomery Boyce. Some of his commentaries have been the richest that I've ever read. And this Philadelphia preacher who preached for many, many, many years looks back at Hosea chapter 3 and says, I believe it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. Why? Well, as we will see, because it portrays the grand story of the Bible, the gospel, the redemption paid by Jesus for his people. And in Hosea, in chapter 3, we see it perhaps in the most concise and poignant form anywhere. And wonderfully, it's by a prophet hundreds of years before Jesus even came. So, if you have a bulletin, if you want to see the points, I'll give them all to you now, and then we'll walk through. There's a lot of text, so we're going to take it section by section. I'll read the first half of chapter 2, then we'll stop. Then I'll read the second half of chapter 2, then we'll stop, and then I'll read chapter 3, and then we'll stop and conclude. But here we go. Here's where we're going. Hosea and God speak as one about the faithlessness of their wives and the judgment coming, but not without a desire to see her restored. So firstly, in the first bunch of verses in chapter 2, we see the illumination of deprivation. I'll explain that in a moment. But I want you to see, if, if you weren't here last week, that there's a picture going on in the book of Hosea. God tells this prophet Hosea, go marry a, a woman named Gomer, go marry this woman, and she will be an adulterer. She's going to cheat on you and she's going to leave you. But God says, go and do that. All the while, the reason for it, the picture of it, is so that Israel can see in clear form the way that they are before God. God is Hosea. Israel is Gomer. And that is how they have treated him. But we will see this illumination of deprivation. Then we come to that beautiful love song in the latter part of chapter 2, restored tenderly by God. Gomer is restored to Hosea. Israel is restored to God. And everyone who comes before God can be restored tenderly by him. Thirdly and finally in chapter 3, we arrive at the gospel story where we are redeemed at great cost to God. Gomer is redeemed at great cost. Israel is redeemed at great cost. Believer, Anyone who gives their life to Jesus, you can recognize that you have been redeemed at great cost. So why don't we start? I'll read the first few verses of chapter 2, and we will get going. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. As you hear this, it's Hosea speaking to Gomer, but it's also God proclaiming this to Israel. Hear both things. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness. This is really strong language, but you're actually going to see in chapter 3 where Gomer's choices have led her to the point where she has got left a godly husband and is essentially um, leaves for other lovers, becomes a prostitute, and eventually it becomes a slave that is being sold in chapter 3. That's where it goes for Gomer. And in those days, a slave was sold. When they were sold, they were sold naked. They were stripped naked so the buyer knew what they were getting. A little bit of a right? A bit of a scenario there. And so God is saying, you've left me, you're leaving me further and further. You're going away from me. I will make you as the day you were born. And ultimately we see that happen in chapter three, but not without a purpose and not without grace. I will make her like a wilderness and I will make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her child, upon her children also, I will have no mercy. Gomer represents Israel. The children represent the individuals within. 
I will make the children also I will have no mercy on, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge her up, hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. And she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my, hus- my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. For I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now there is a lot there. This is one of those rich texts where there is so much to discover. I have spent a lot of time studying this text and I think I've spent even more time asking the question, what do I say this morning? Because... We essentially have like an African service, which goes for about five or six hours, if I really wanted to say everything, because it's just so rich. So most of the work here is this like, oh Lord, like what do I say? So we're going to zero in on what I hope are the primary themes throughout and track the story that way. But I want us to see this, this issue of illumination of deprivation. There's judgment that's coming. Judgment is upon them. There's some pretty hard words that are being said here, but we need to discover that God has a plan in them and the plan is good. So walk with me through that. The charge of whoredom made against Israel in chapter 1 verse 2 last week is supported and explained in the text that I just read in chapter 2. She left her husband, was living with and sleeping with other men, and believed that they could provide better for her than her husband. We see this in verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers. This is really interesting because as As she is saying, I will go after my lovers, we need to make note of this. John Calvin put it well when he said, It indeed happens sometimes that a man is thoughtlessly drawn aside by a mistake or folly, but he soon repents, for we see many of the inexperienced deceived for a short time. But the prophet here shows that the Israelites premeditated their unfaithfulness so that they willfully departed from God. Ye have with a premeditated purpose sought this divorce. We see it in verse 5. She pursued after her lovers. She gets to the point where she becomes a prostitute, but she's not the kind of prostitute who waits for the John to come by. She's the one pursuing her lovers. It's with intent. It's purposeful. It's not accidental. They didn't just happen upon it. They willfully walked the opposite direction of God. And then in the latter part of the verse, we see why. She says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
She believes that there is more to get. There is more luxury, there is more fulfillment, there is more pleasure, there are more resources with others than with her husband, with other gods rather than with God. What Israel was, go- was doing um, was, was going to the bales at their temples and worshiping them, and then the rains come, and the crops grow, and Baal was this fertility god, and... Um, and an agricultural god, and so when the crops would grow, and they had been to the temples, which they were doing to worship Baal, and then the crops grew, you know what they did? They said, ah, see, my new lover is the one who provides for me. But God is, is, is showing them through Hosea and Gomer that that's not the case at all. It's always been God. They've been wayward. They've left him. They haven't relied on him, but it's always been him. It's always been him. In fact, we see in the text here that that she believed, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold. So as she goes to other lovers who provide her nothing, they don't have any resources, these other lovers, these other gods, right, have nothing. But what she doesn't realize is as she goes off to them, that all the while Hosea is gathering the resources that she needs, goes to the lover's house, knocks on the door, he answers this other lover who's sleeping with his wife and says, here's everything she needs. Make sure she gets it. Over and over and over again, the husband who truly provides is going over and over again. Wherever her and her lovers are going, she's fi- he, Hosea's finding her over and over and over again and bringing what she needs because it's only him who gives what, her, what she needs. They don't, but she believes that they do. We, we, we actually talked about this a lot in our, in our generous series a few weeks back when we were talking really about how, how, how to view money and possessions, how the Bible view money and possessions. And what we, what we really summarized was this, that everything everywhere is ultimately God, ev- God's. Every resource is ultimately his. He created it. He made it. He entrusts it to people. And as he entrusts it to, to us as his children, we're, we're conduits of his grace. We're conduits of 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 resources for other people. So everything is God's. He entrusts some to us as believers and we spend it on disciple making, going and making disciples of all nations. We go to bless the nations. We want Chilliwack, Agassiz and the world transformed. And so we have these resources, but we're conduits of it. It's not ultimately ours and it's not ultimately for us. It's to use to bless the nations and our community. And so we, we believe that. We discovered that. But we fall for the lie like Gomer and Israel that we or someone else brings the blessings in our lives and it's not God. Oh, this great thing worked out and, and, and the, we track the line of where it came from and we don't, when, whenever we don't resolve that it's from God, it's from a lesser thing. Oh, well, this person got me this. This person bailed me out. No, God ultimately bailed you out. Everything is his. Right? Anytime, anywhere, that something comes your way, that you have something, it's ultimately from him. He's showering it. It's like Hosea showing up where his wife is with another lover and she thinks that lover's providing for her. It's really Hosea coming to the Lord. It's really God coming to the door and saying, here's what you really need. I don't know why you're going that way, but I'm just going to continue. I'm supplying your need to the point where it reaches a breaking point, where God declares in chapter two, he says, You think it's from the Baals, but it's from me. You think it's from other gods, but it's from me. And so I am going to, by deprivation, remind you of who I am. 
So I'm going to cut the tap. You think that it's from the bales that the harvest comes? Well, the harvest is going to stop coming. You think that the wine flows from your other lovers? It comes from me, and so I'm going to stop it. That's where he goes. Look at verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her path. This is his lover. This is God's lover. This is Hosea. Gomer is Hosea's lover, but he's going to build a hedge around her that hinders her way. The nation had chosen a path that they thought led from idolatry to prosperity, but now God is going to cut that path off by sovereignly imposing affliction. So I need you to just step back for a moment and see the grace in this. It looks harsh, but it's full of grace. I want to tell you one of my favorite parables, probably one of the most famous parables in the Gospels that Jesus told, the the parable of the prodigal son. There's two sons. The younger son goes to his father. Many of you know this, but let me just tell you the story for for this reason. Goes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. You only did that after your father died. That's when you got your inheritance. So he's going to his dad and essentially saying, I want your stuff. I don't want you. I want your cash. I don't want you. You're as good as dead to me. Give me the things that are owed to me. Give them to me now. And so he gets his share of the inheritance. And off he goes to a different land. And it says that he lived recklessly. He had a lot of friends as long as he had cash. And he had a lot of fun in his mind as long as he had cash. But when the cash ran out, the friends were gone. And he he went down the totem pole so far that he was feeding pigs. And as he fed the pigs these pods, he looked down at the food longingly and wished that he could eat like these pigs did. That's how bad it got for him. But as he's feeding the pigs, as he's putting food in the trough, seeing the food, longing to eat what they get to eat, he's not even eating as well as them. You know what he remembers? How good it was with dad. Did he remember that as he was partying, having money flowing, having friends around him like crazy? Was he remembering all that his father had done for him? No, he didn't think about him for a moment. But when it ran out and when he had been brought low, who does he remember? What a loving dad he had. How good his father was. How good his upbringing was. How good his home was. How he longed to be back where he belonged and should have been. But it's only when the resources all ran out. The exact same thing is happening here to a nation and to a woman named Gomer. It has to be spent. The well has to run dry for them even to think again of God because they've forgotten him. They don't remember him anymore. They think that all of their great resources are coming from elsewhere when they're coming from him. And so he needs them to see it's always been from God. It's always him. Gomer needs to see it's always been Hosea quietly knocking on the door of the man who's cheating with his wife and supplying her needs. It's always how it's been. It's always how it is. It's God who provides. Verse 9 Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time. I'm going to stop supplying it. And my wine in its season. And I will take back away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. They're just not going to do it anymore. But for the reason that, like the younger prodigal, she could be brought home. So, verse 16 makes it really clear that Israel has love... uh, that Israel's other lovers are idols. And all their celebrations and dressing up were for another lover. She put on the ring, she put on the garments, she put on the jewelry. 
not for her husband, but for her other lovers. And God makes it really clear to the point where he says, God reveals that they have got, it, things have gotten so bad that they literally just forgot me. That was the atmosphere at that time. But in the midst of that, God restores her tenderly. Look at verse 14. I'll read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will, I, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have, no I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. So he brings them low so they can hear his voice. And what you expect is God brings them low. That's the judgment, right? That's, that's the deprivation that they've experienced. As they do that and as they actually can hear God for the first time in a long time, don't you, if you're anything like me, you kind of expect God to lean in and be like, wrath, what have you done? And just like lay into them, right? Oh, you can finally hear me? Right? And just like tear a strip off of them. Just lay into them judgment. Just Right? Don't you kind of expect that? They, they literally gave themselves to another lover. They've been adulterous, right? They've cheated on him. They've prostituted themselves. And they're finally listening to him. But do you hear what he does? Do you hear what God does? I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is wooing language. It's, it's language like pursuing her for the first time. Right? Any of you, when you're trying to find that person, maybe who is your spouse, or if you're not married, somebody you've tried to get the attention of, you work hard. Like the language, like the talk that you use, you really, I hope they, I hope they love this phrase. Or I, I'm just going to, maybe they'll think this is really nice. Or, right? and you're, 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 every sentence, every right thing you're saying, you're, every note you're script, like, so thought, oh, I hope they love this. I hope they like, right? That's the language here. Of it, it's like this, this pursuit for the first time, this tender wooing language. The, and the wilderness represents a better time in their history. It's like God is saying, let's, Let's go back to that place we first met. Like, let's take a drive together and drive by, you know, where we had our first coffee, where we, you know, did this, had, had our first date and did this, right? Like, that's what he's doing. Let's go back to the wilderness. Remember, I freed you from, it, from, from Egypt and you were following me and believing me and trusting me, right? That he's using that kind of language. So when they finally listen, he speaks tenderly to her and wants to draw her back, regardless of their sin, their rejection of God, as their husband, he will continue to be faithful. 
faithful despite the difficulty, faithful no matter what. We see God's faithfulness just glowing, just beaming from the text here. Reminds me of a story I, I, I jotted down because I, I read it in Christianity Today like years ago for such a moment as this. I've been saving it for you. It's called Till Death Do Us Part, uh, uh, an article written by Robertson McQuilkin. This is kind of a review of the story. It's not the actual article from Christianity Today, but Robertson McQuilkin stepped down from a high-profile um, uh, Bible college uh, position as the president there down in the States. Um, him and his wife met as students at Columbia Bible College, not in Abbotsford, but now Columbia International University down south. And Robertson McQuilkin remembers sitting behind her in chapel watching Muriel Webendorfer. Love it. Run her, here's how he describes it, her lovely artistic fingers through her lovely brown hair. There's somebody wooing right there. As they began spending time together, he discovered Muriel was delightful, smart, and gifted, and just a great lover of people and more fun than you can imagine, he said. He proposed on Valentine's Day in 1948, and they met in August the same year. For the next three decades, they raised six children and served God together at a variety of posts, including 12 years as missionaries in Japan. In 1968, they returned to the United States, and Robertson became president of Columbia Bible College. Muriel taught at the college, spoke at women's conferences, appeared on television, and was featured on a radio program that was considered for national syndication. The first sign that their lives were about to change appeared in 1978. During a trip to Florida to visit some friends, Muriel loved to tell stories and punctuated them with her infectious laughter. But while they were driving, she began telling a story she had just finished a few minutes earlier. Honey, you just told us that, Robertson said. But she laughed and went on. That's funny, Robertson thought. That's never happened before. But the same type of problem occurred again and again with increasing frequency. Muriel began to find it difficult to plan menus for parties. She would speak at public functions and lose her train of thought. She had to give up her radio show. In 1981, when she was hospitalized for tests on her heart, a doctor told Robertson, you may need to think about the possibility of Alzheimer's disease. It was hard to believe since the disease which causes progressive degeneration of the brain does not usually strike someone so young, but the diagnosis was confirmed by other doctors. As the next few years went by, Robertson watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner slowly faded away. Muriel knew she was having problems, but she never understood that she had Alzheimer's. Robertson said, one thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forgot. So she never seemed to suffer too much with it. Muriel found it more and more difficult to express herself. She stopped speaking in complete sentences, relying on phrases or words. Though she continued to recognize her husband and children, she lived in, in Robertson's words, in happy oblivion to almost everything else. There was one phrase she often used, however, I love you. Over and over again, she would declare, I love you to Robertson and her kids. Robertson learned much about love from Muriel and from God during those first few years of her disease. When he was away from her, she became distressed and would often walk the half mile to his office several times a day to look for him. Once Robertson was helping her take her shoes off and discovered her feet were bloody from walking to his office over and over and over again to look for him. He was amazed by her love for him and wondered if he had loved God enough to be so, wondered if he loved God enough to be so driven to spend time with him that he would have bloody feet. By 1990, Robertson knew 
He needed to make a decision about his career. The school needed him 100%, and Muriel needed him 100%. In the end, Robertson says, the choice to step down from his position was easy for him to make. Perhaps the best explanation can be found in the letter he wrote to the Columbia Bible College constituency to explain his decision. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent, She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there's more. I love Muriel. She is my delight. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. So Robertson became a homemaker and a caregiver, and he was proud of it. The touchstone for me, he says, was, has always been, with whatever God has put in me or will ever put in me, how can that count the maximum for what he is up to in the world? People think it must be so difficult, but actually, even on the emotional side, I don't look back with any regrets at all. I enjoyed the new life. All I had to know was God's assignment for me now. In a culture where people prize their individual freedoms above all else, this simple story of a man who loved and served his wife has touched people in a way that he never anticipated. The story of Robertson's act of love spread across the country. Robertson couldn't understand why. So many people were inspired by his choice. Then, an oncologist who worked with dying patients told him, almost all women stand by their men. Very few men stand by their women. Perhaps people sensed this contemporary tragedy and somehow were helped by a simple choice I considered the only option. It is all more than keeping promises and being fair, however. As I watched her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I always loved. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. Robertson continued to love his wife this way all the way till the end of her life. By the time their 50th anniversary passed in 1999, she had lost all ability to function on her own and spent each day lying in bed until she passed away in 2003. This is just a sliver of the glimpse of a glimpse of God's faithfulness. God is faithful regardless of the sins of his people, the rejection of his people as their husband or any circumstance that could come their way. God will continue to be faithful, faithful despite difficulty, faithful no matter what. This is just a sliver of the glimpse of God's faithfulness and it's embodied in a brother who loved his wife to the end. And this is the kind of love, although obviously far more paramount, that God has for us. Look at verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That is the foundation upon 
the marriage he has with his people. That's the covenant he's made with you and me to be faithful, righteous, just, loving, in steadfast love and mercy. And in that day, that day that is coming, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will draw you out into the wilderness, speak tenderly to you, and I will woo you back. God declares to unfaithful people. God is saying, you will talk to me as your only true God and husband. I'll remain faithful to you. You'll come back to me. And that is the restoration that God promises. That is the gospel in the Old Testament. God comes to woo us tenderly to himself. He offers hope and security. He starts over with any who will come and offers us the most intimate and pleasure-filled relationship possible. At this point, as we've been talking in Hosea and seeing this picture as Hosea as the husband of Gomer and God, the husband of his people, you may be asking, why, why that spouse language? Why that husband language? Why not simply stick with king and subjects, right? Father and children and sh- uh, shepherds and sheep, right? Why not just stick with those? Well, they don't go far enough because it's only the marriage portrait that truly epitomizes God's desire for your heart. Not simply your duty, but your heart. Marriage represents intimacy, closeness, and being fully known. Anyone here ever tried to prioritize something or someone above your spouse? <laughs> Like, have you ever tried to put your work ahead of your spouse? Have you ever tried to put the guys ahead of your wife? It doesn't go well, does it? It doesn't go well at all. There are a few conversations that start to be had, when, right? When that pattern is off, when it's wrong. Because the marriage relationship is to be the closest knit thing on the planet. That's what it's meant to be. That, and that is the reason that marriage is the picture here. Because that's what God desires from you. When he has your heart, he has everything. And he says, I want to be that relationship that is deeper than any other. And so, sorry, king and subject isn't close enough. Even father and child isn't close enough. A shepherd and sheep, just not close enough. Husband to wife. That's what I, God who created all things and made you, desires from you, and I will do everything it takes to woo you to myself. I want you as my spouse. I want your heart, not just your duty, not just your hands. I want your heart. The God of the universe uses marriage imagery to convey the type of relationship he desires with you. Don't just give him your hands. Don't just give him duty. Give him your heart. And thirdly, Um, You can talk about it later on your drive home, whether this is the greatest chapter in the Bible or not, but let's read it. We'll discover together what it says. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I just love that verse. It's sort of like, they love other gods, they turn to other things, and they love Slurpees. It's like, what? I don't understand, right? They have other gods before me. They love someone and they don't love me and they're really into rom-com movies. Like, what? It just doesn't, like, it's so random. They love cakes of raisins. Where did that come from? Cakes of raisins were the delicacy at false idol feasts. When they would go worship the Baals, you know what the food was? The delicacy, the treat, part of the party to false idols? Cakes of raisins. They've given themselves to other gods They've given themselves over to it all. And maybe they would like Slurpees if they had been invented. I don't know. 
Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. There will be no other. It will be you and me. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Wow. What God called Hosea to do this is what it's gotten to, is to redeem his wife, to purchase her from slavery. She went from his spouse to cheating, to prostitution, um, to slavery. And and really, the the reasons that she would have become a slave at this point is that that she got, things got so bad that she got a debt that she couldn't pay back, be a reason she'd be sold into slavery, or essentially that she landed in the hands of a pimp who had no use for her anymore, and so was going to sell her for what he could get for her. That was the situation. It was a bleak one. She's gone from this loving husband who will provide all she needs to being sold into slavery, probably by a pimp. And all the while she had thought that it would be the better way. That's where we're at. And in the midst of that, God called Hosea to redeem his wife, his unfaithful wife, the one who had left, slept with other men, had children with other men, God called him to buy her back. This is a picture of redemption, to be bought back, to be purchased. Ephesians 1, 7 puts it this way, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. It's redemption. How are we redeemed? How How are people redeemed now, here? Well, we're like Gomer, being on the auction block of slavery and we were purchased by the blood of Christ. To redeem something is to buy it back, to save it by purchasing it. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that Jesus redeems us by his blood. The forgiveness of trespasses. We see that Gomer was purchased for 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. Really, he paid half in silver, half in barley. Um, God calls Hosea to, to buy back this slave, this who is his um, wife, a strange wife, and he, he goes to the marketplace and he brings all the money he's got and the bidding goes. And like I said before, there she stands naked in front of a bunch of men purchasing her for exactly you know what. And, and, and bidding goes and goes as they look at this woman and bid on her. And before long, it's 14 pieces pieces of silver, 15 pieces of silver. Well, he's only brought 15 pieces of silver and now it's going up. And so here, Hosea in the crowd at the marketplace is going to just go all in. 15 pieces of silver and a bunch of barley. Everything I've got, I have to have her. All he had. Way back in the prophet Hosea, we see a picture of Jesus spending everything for you and for me. Every last drop, every last cent spent for you on the cross. He didn't mostly die. He wasn't mostly crucified. He was completely crucified and killed and laid in a tomb dead. So he could buy you back with the purchase of every last drop of his blood. All in. 
God sends his son to do that for you and for me. This is why James Boyce calls this the greatest chapter in the Bible. When we see Hosea standing in the marketplace and instructed by God to purchase his wife who had become an adulterer and a slave, we recognize that this is the portrait of God's love. God steps into the marketplace of sin and buys us out of sin's bondage by the death of Christ. We are Gomer. I said this last week. We're not Hosea, the good guy. We're Gomer, the whore. We are the slaves sold on the auction block of sin, yet when all seemed lost, God sent his son Jesus into the marketplace to buy us at the cost of his son's life, at the price of his blood, and he takes us and discards our filthy rags of unrighteousness and clothes us in righteousness. He purchases us, takes us from slavery to adoption. He brings us in, and in this sense, in this picture, brings us back in right standing as our spouse. He's spoken tenderly, he's wooed wooed back, he's paid the price, and now he will have her for his wife, and he will love her. There's two applications I want to do as we close, one to marriage and one just generally towards faithfulness. The standard set before Hosea's love in his marriage with Gomer is to be the standard of the Christian to their spouse in marriage. So just at a marriage level, this story of Hosea thus far is a a picture for Christian marriage. James Montgomery Boyce said, you say to, to objectors, do you mean to tell me that if my wife or my husband runs away from me and commits adultery that I will still, that I am still to be faithful? Do you mean to tell me that I must continue to love someone like that when I have been wronged and the sanctity of our marriage has been violated? Yes, that is precisely our standard. But that is not fair. True, it is not fair. Who said anything about being fair? It is just the expression of true love. The faithfulness of the one, the faithlessness of the one, should not end the true love of the other. This standard before Hosea is exactly the standard that Paul holds up before believers. We're called to be disciples of Jesus, and we see how Jesus treats his bride. He's the model. Listen to this, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I said it last week, I'll say it again. It's only dirty things that need to be cleansed. It's only the messy stuff that needs to be washed. And so the reality is that Christ loves his church warts and all. Full of sin and all, Christ died for her, laid down his life for her, loves her that way. She's unfaithful. He continues to be faithful. Ephesians 5 is precisely the story of Hosea 3. And we're to be disciples of Jesus. We're to love that way. We're to follow after him as the model. Right? It, this is the point where we love to follow the world's standards and, and say it's crazy, but we're not supposed to follow the world's standards. We're supposed to follow the word's standards. See what I did there? I took out the L. Okay. Second Timothy 2 verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Well, what is a disciple? It's taking on the very nature of Jesus. It's becoming like Christ. Discipleship is being like Jesus and he can't deny himself. He's faithful. How can he become faithless? He can't. And we're to be like Christ. So we begin to ask the question, how can I be faithless? Jesus has been so faithful to me. How can I be faithless to my spouse? They, 
Jesus has been so faithful to his. How can I not love my spouse despite what she or he has done? Look what God called Hosea to do in order to redeem her. And this isn't just some fictitious or some fantasy thing like removed from reality. A pastor friend of mine told me this story. Um, this pastor friend used to be the lead pastor here. All right, Ron told me this story. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> True story. A few years back, a couple who didn't know the Lord were married. Neither of them knew Jesus. They were married. The husband encountered Jesus through a buddy at work and gave his life to the Lord. His wife was upset at the change in him. He no longer wanted to party the same ways and do all the same things. And she complained to him that he'd become religious. She threatened to leave if he didn't come around. But he was devoted to Jesus now and couldn't leave the Lord, nor was he going to leave her. She decided to leave him. And being a new believer and not being sure what exactly to do, he talked with his friend from work. His friend told him to read the parable of the prodigal son. The man did, did and noticed that the father did not exercise his rights. Instead, he determined to overtly love his son, even in his rebellion. He determined to do the same with his wife. Rather than claim his half and argue with her, he explained to her that he loved her and wanted the best for her. She was free to take whatever she wanted, and he would help her move to her new place, even though it grieved him to see her go. Surprised, she took what she wanted, and together they moved her. He continued to pour out love towards his wife, asking her how she was doing, what she needed, and how he could help her. This overt manifestation of love had a profound impact on his wife. Over time, several months later, she softened to the gospel and through her husband's gentle kindness and manifest love, opened her life to the Lord. With the sacrificial, committed love of Jesus as the center of our lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit, our marriage relationships can be redeemed. They can be counter to culture and can be a picture of Christ's love for his church. If you're thinking, I can't love like that, you're right. But you can love like that if you allow God to help you. You may think it's impossible, but it isn't impossible if you are truly united to Christ, walking by the Holy Spirit, and allowing him to love through you. Finally, an application to faithfulness for us all. Gomer's other lovers overpromised and underdelivered. She believed that there was much better waiting for her with these other lovers, and yet none of it came through. Hosea was always the one who ended up providing for her, and her choices and her ways led her into slavery, overpromise, underdeliver, eventually leading to slavery. God promise, God's promises are sure, and He overdelivers. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We think we, get, we think we come to understanding of God's grace and then we're blown away by it yet again. And we think we come to understanding of God's grace and then we're blown away by it again. We think we understand his love for us and his pursuit of us and then we're blown away by it again. He's faithful and he over-delivers. Our comprehension of him is just scratching the surface of his true beauty. He's far better than you even believe. And he purchased us out of slavery at the cost of his life having been bought at a price, having been purchased and redeemed, 
we should be moved to faithfulness in light of the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Like in marriage, we take on his name. From sinner to Christian, our name has changed. And we have been unfaithful, but we can determine to always be faithful to him from now on. We can go to him again and again, asking him to work in us, continually growing and sanctifying us until that great day when we will stand face to face with Jesus at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the great conclusion of all of this. And look, we have been unfaithful, and yet we can, in light of all that Christ has done, in light of his grace, we can choose faithfulness. Though our bent is toward unfaithfulness, we can do that. So look, in conclusion... If you've never given your life to Jesus, if there's some sort of impulse in your head, in your heart, in your gut this morning, he's wooing you. He's speaking tenderly to you. I encourage you to respond and give your life to Jesus. There's no greater love. There's a redeeming love going on in this story, right? You think you're too bad for his grace? You think you've gone too far? You think you're the one person who's lived in such a way that God wouldn't redeem your situation? You're wrong. God has this pattern of taking the worst and redeeming them fully, restoring them beautifully. You're never outside of uh, his grace. And if you, if you want to come to him, if you want to repent, if you want to return to him in faith, if you want to live a faithful life in light of all that he's done, you can know that his offer extends to you. He is gracious and kind and more loving than you dare imagine. Not only that, he doesn't want your duty. He doesn't simply want you to do tasks for him. He doesn't want you at an arm's length like a shepherd to sheep or like a king to his subjects. God wants your heart because when he has your heart, he has everything. So would you treat him like a spouse? Would you draw near to him in the way that only a spouse can know you and know that he accepts you and loves you and wants to work out the best for you? Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your loving kindness, for your grace. Thank you that you woo. Thank you that you redeem. Thank you that you want our hearts. You aren't some distant deity that wants us at an arm's length. You want intimacy with us. That's your longing. Lord, may we respond. The roadblocks that stand in the way, would you help us break those down? Would you help us approach your throne of grace, understanding that we're acceptable in your, in your sight in light of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for standing in the marketplace that day and paying the price to purchase us. Oh God, I thank you for such grace. I praise you for such grace. May your blessings be poured out on, on us as a church, on, on my friends here as a people. God, would they get that intimate sense of your redeeming love. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.